there. I'm Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States, and I've recently started a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. G'day, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet since April of 2014. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I also have type 2 diabetes. We're going to share the progress of my journey through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis, and hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. We're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We are actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail. Uh, we have done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them, and we hope to share some of that uh, research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite the research supporting any claims that we make. You'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. We love to eat. We oh, love yeah. to cook. So we're going to share some of the great food that we eat on this diet. And every episode, both of us share a recipe for an essential keto meal that we eat regularly. So, Richard, you ready to start? Yeah, I am. Let's do it. Let's crank up the music. Podcast number six, The Protein Show. First of all, Richard, do we have any corrections and apologies from last week? Sure. I mentioned uh, last week that my regular glucose is 5.2 millimoles per liter. And I incorrectly mm -hmm. converted that to the American system, which is uh, milligrams per deciliter. I said it was 80 milligrams per deciliter. That's incorrect. Ah. It's actually 5.2 millimoles is actually 93 milligrams per deciliter. And there's an online tool for converting between one and the other, and we've linked that in the show notes. Excellent. So uh, how did you do this week? Yeah, I did well, actually. I Coming off my fast, I did uh, about 64 hours of fasting. Uh, in that, I did a bit of uh, exercise, a fair bit of exercise. Right now, I'm down three kilos from my pre-fast weight. Uh, I haven't done this week's uh, cycle yet. so I got you. Yeah, so um, I might be down a little bit more after my bike ride tomorrow, but uh, you know, for me, the bottom line's never been about weight. Yeah. For me, it's, it, it's always about getting my glucose healthy, a healthy level of glucose, um, because there's so many other things, you know, that follow on from that. Yeah, we, we're, we're here to reverse diabetes. Pretty much. That's, that was my goal. And um, the second goal, if I could achieve the first, was to get to instinctively being able to eat uh, what I wanted, when I wanted. Uh, basically, I wanted to be, get to a point where I, I was able to eat when I was hungry yeah. and put my body through some exercise demands and for my body to maintain a healthy weight range. So that's... Yep. That's something I've never been able to do. So that was that was a goal for me, and that's something I achieved as well. Same here. So, Carl, how are you going this week? Well, it, uh, this week I did an experiment, Richard, mm -hmm. and uh, I wanted to see what would happen if I did a cheat day. Ah. And so on Sunday, after we recorded the the fasting show, you know, as you know, I had lost four pounds doing a sixty hour fast. Yeah, sure. And I broke the fast that morning. I had a, a nice uh, egg and cheese and bacon sandwich on sourdough bread, and it was yummy. Yeah, we spoke about that during the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, and I talked about it during the podcast. Well, that was Irish Parade Day here in New London. Ah, okay. And uh, my favorite pub is right below the studio. All my friends are there, and uh, and I play as well. So I was I was there all day. Nice. So I had a couple of pints of Guinness. As you do. And I had a couple of corned beef sandwiches, which was, you know, yeah, it's what you do on 
Irish Parade Day. It was it was on Sunday. St. Patrick's Day was on Thursday. So it was sort of like a pre-St. Patrick's Day parade. Sure. But everybody was celebrating, of course. Then I took my kids out to dinner. I don't get to have both of them at the same time. One's in college and, you know, they wanted to go get pizza. So I said, yeah, great. So we got pizza. I got a, a small pizza. I had a couple of Cokes, which I never drink Coke. Oh, dear. You know? So you actually you actually drank a leaded Coke, a sugar Coke. Oh, yeah, coke. yeah, yeah. Oh, dear, I drank oh, two, two fountain sodas, right? Oh, and no. then after we went and got Ben and Jerry's and oh, I had three no. scoops of ice cream, yeah, I wanted to see what happened. Well, okay. yeah, it didn't work out so well, but here's... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tell us what happened, yeah? Yeah. The next day, I'm six pounds heavier. Oh, wow. Woo! Six pounds, yo. So that was Monday. I woke up six pounds heavier. Ouch. Interestingly enough, something didn't happen. I didn't have the cravings. Ah, okay. Interesting. Yep. I I woke up, I was heavier, but my cravings were, you know, gone. And if this had been um, a couple of months ago and I had had a day like that, I would have been really, really hungry and craving carbs and it would have been hard to get back on the, the horse. Yeah. However, I had my bulletproof coffee in the morning. I had a keto lunch. I had a keto dinner. Everything was great. Now, the next three days, the next four days, I did uh, dinner only. Right. So, no breakfast, no lunch. No breakfast, no lunch. I didn't even have bulletproof coffee in the morning. Nice. All I had was, uh, just like during my long fast, I had salted water and made sure to take fiber, you know, psyllium husk. Okay. And uh, multivitamin and my mineral uh, supplement. And I had, you know, salt water when I got hungry. And then the pounds came off. Two nice. pounds a day yeah, for three days. And then one pound, uh, I did one pound down this morning. So basically, it uh, took me five days to get back to where I was after that fast. Yeah. So that's, that's not good. No. Well, I can kind of guesstimate what happened. Um, you put on glycogen. Yeah. You know, so you probably ate... Uh, uh, three three hundred grams or so of carbohydrates, and you would have repleted almost your glycogen stores. Um, mm. And of course, all of that you probably were dehydrated as well. You probably drank a lot more than you normally would. Um, mm -hmm. And so you, what you did was you you refilled your temporary glucose tanks. Yeah. So you, you you had to burn that down, mm. and that's why intermittent fasting was such a good thing because. Uh, it forced you to, to burn down through that glucose very quickly. Right. And, and because you're fat adapted, you're efficiently able to burn fats. Yeah. It's not like you were sort of uh, two months ago where you were great at burning glucose because that was what you did, but you weren't that good at burning fats. If you'd gone through this process, you would have felt awful. I would have. You probably still felt pretty bad, but... Uh, yes, but it wasn't as bad as it would have been a couple months ago. You're right. And, yeah. and like I said, there were no cravings and everything. And even you know while I was eating the carbs... I didn't crave them. Oh, interesting. You know, I'm a scientist by nature, so I, I love to tinker and- Self-experimentation. Exactly. So for now, I'm going to stick with the intermittent fasting daily. And uh, if I hit a plateau there, then I'll probably do a couple of days of keto and maybe a 60-hour fast again. That's sort of the way it's going to go. So during your feeding window in intermittent fasting, you are you planning to be mostly keto or- All keto. All keto, right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I've heard it said that um, uh, keto and IF 
uh, when you combine the two, are twice as good as any as either is. So yeah. in terms of lowering your insulin and then um, causing weight loss uh, to happen on a persistent basis. So yeah, that's awesome. Right. So uh, welcome to Two Keto Dudes. Just as a recap, the ketogenic diet that Richard and I eat, basically we restrict our carbohydrates to incidental carbs, which is mostly from green leafy vegetables and maybe some nuts. Uh, and we eat enough protein to maintain muscles and everything else comes from fat. So it's typically 75 to 80% of your calories come from fat. Yeah. About 20% come from protein and about 5% from incidental carbs. That's what ketogenic is. While we're actually losing weight, that fat, most of that fat is actually coming from, from body fat. It's not like 75% of our plate is fat. Right. Um, it's actually, I guess, probably 20% or so. But most of the fat that we're burning for energy is coming from our from a Krispy Kreme we ate a decade ago and didn't need at the time, so we put it on our love handles <laughs> and uh, kept it around for when, just for a rainy day. So this is the point in the show where we typically read some email or a comment, but we didn't sure. really get anything this week. Ah, Richard, before we talk about protein, there is one thing that bugged me this week. Um, I hear people talking about kilocalories, and I only talk about calories with a capital C, which is, you know, there's a hundred calories in this, you know, little bag of food or something like that. But what is a kilocalorie? Okay, so I I always use the term kilocalorie because uh, there's no possibility for, well, there's less possibility for confusion. But there's two schools of thought on the term calorie. There are people who are talking about food. That's your nutritionists and dietitians, and they're talking about calories with an uppercase C, a capital C calorie. But what I think of when I say when you see hundred calorie snack pack. Yeah, that's right. So that's what you that's that's what you're talking about, a capital C calorie. Now, physicists have always had their own measurement of energy, and it's basically uh, how much energy is required to raise a gram of uh, water by one degree, and their measurement is actually one thousandth of the measurement of a dietitian's calorie. So a physicist's calorie, when you see it written out, uses a lowercase c. Yeah. And it confuses everybody because obviously we can't use uh, we can't use case while we're talking on a podcast. Right. So I like to say kilocalories to be precise. What I'm talking about is one thousand of the the uh, physics versions of the calorie. All right. So when you say your bone broth that you ate on a fast was maybe 30 kilocalories, it was nothing. Do you mean 30 calories with a capital C? Yes, I do. I see. So a dietitian would say that's a 30 calorie. All right. So it's really just to disambiguate between a lowercase calorie, which is a thousandth of a uppercase calorie. That's exactly it. Yeah. But a kilocalorie is a thousand lowercase calories or one regular calorie. That's right. Yeah. All right. So this is the protein show. Let's talk about protein. First of all, it's an elusive term. And it's one of those terms that people don't really understand what it means. And, you know, like enzyme is another one that people throw around because it has a an active sound to it. Like, oh, enzymes are working, right? right. You know? Sure. <laughs> really, we don't understand it. Just Tell us in plain English what protein is. Okay, well, I'll, I'll try and be as plain English as I'm pos- as I'm able to. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, it's energy, and it's also the building blocks that we make our body from. Okay. So, from an energy point of view, it's about the same energy density as glucose. 
Uh, so four kilocalories per gram. In fact, it's slightly more dense than sugar, uh, than glucose. When you measure it in kilojoules, it's like 16 kilojoules per gram for glucose and 17 for protein. But um, but that's, uh, that's way too much detail. All right. It's also the building blocks that we make our body from. Right. Proteins are long chains of things called amino acids. Proteins are otherwise known as polypeptides. So it's basically a long chain of these amino acids. And the structure of how those amino acids link together determines what the large-scale shape of that protein is. And it's the shape of the protein that does most of the work. So you can probably think of amino acids as like little different shaped Lego bricks. And the structure of how you put together those Lego bricks determines what the protein is going to do. And um, there's uh, a lot of proteins in the, in the human body. Insulin, for example, is a protein. Insulin has, at one end of the insulin uh, molecule, is a little key that fits into a lock on the outside of your cells. And when that insulin goes into that lock, it opens a gateway that allows glucose into the cell. Oh, very so cool. So it's the physical structure of that long chain of uh, amino acids that does the work. Uh, yeast proteins have an average of 466 amino acids. So you can imagine they're quite complicated, long structures. The longest uh, 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 protein found in the human body is in muscle cells and has 27,000 amino acids. Wow. So it's a fairly complicated thing. Yeah. Uh, hemoglobin in blood is another, is another protein that carries the oxygen around our body. So they're vitally important for our, for our body. Um, and there's 20, some, some say 22 different amino acids off, uh, commonly found in human proteins. Um, nine of them are essential, which, is, which basically means that we need them for our day-to-day functioning and we don't make them. We can't make them from anything else. So we have to eat them. So you have to have protein in your diet. We use protein to maintain our body. If you don't have enough protein in your diet, your body will catabolize um, unneeded protein structures like muscles um, and that's and catabolize why means burn for fuel break down means to p- pull apart and and yeah. we're going to retask we're going to reuse this these amino acids for um, for building up necessary proteins like um, you know if you, if you ran out of insulin that would be a problem or if you ran out of hemoglobin that would be a problem if you've got pecs like Arnold Schwarzenegger and you're about to run out of hemoglobin it's probably a reasonable thing for your body to say let's take some of those pectoralis muscles and turn them into into hemoglobin so we can uh, keep this body alive. So Wow. So you just mentioned that insulin is also a protein. Yes. And I didn't want that to get past people. Yeah. So that's a protein that is created by your pancreas? Yes, it is. And it's stored in islet cells and it's released whenever there's glucose in your blood. Yeah. There's four things that will release insulin and two of them are proteins. Um, You've got glucose and mannose, which which are two sugars, and there are two amino acids um, I think alanine and leucine, and both of those will, um, they're called secretagogues. They cause insulin to be secreted. All right. And we also know that when you eat uh, glucose or fructose or any sugar, that uh, more insulin is secreted in response to sugar than protein. But eating protein, as we said before, does also raise insulin a little bit, So not as much. If glucose raises your insulin at 100%, Protein raises it around about 56%. Interesting. And fat doesn't raise it at all by its nature, but the brain notices that you're eating something with calories in, and it says, right, we're going to just send out a little uptick of insulin 
little basal level of insulin increase just to make sure in case there's something coming in. So your brain via the hypothalamus and, and the vagus nerve will tell the, the pancreas, hey, get on the job and release a little bit of insulin because we might have some calories coming soon. Okay, so we know on the ketogenic diet that you're not burning uh, glucose for fuel anymore, right? And you're burning fat either that you eat or that comes off your belly. And and you're also burning the protein that you eat. Now, when I think of fueling the fire, what is, is there a difference in how your body metabolizes or burns fat versus protein? Yes, there is. It takes a lot more energy for the body to metabolize protein. So it's more efficient for you to metabolize fat. Hmm. When fat goes into the mitochondria to be metabolized, you basically end up with carbon dioxide and water hmm. uh, produced. So it's a very, very clean uh, process. Protein happens a little bit different. Protein is really a backup fuel source. It's for when you don't have any glucose and you don't have any fat, we'll write out, what we'll do is we'll break down some protein and we'll... You know, if you've got Arnold Schwarzenegger biceps, we'll use some of those mm. to keep you alive, give you enough energy to be able to chase down a woolly mammoth and uh, get a feed. Right. It's the third primary source of energy. Protein doesn't burn clean. What happens is, so the first thing that happens is protein is deaminated, which is basically the nitrogen gets shuffled off and turned into urea, and then that gets filtered out by the kidneys. And so what you have left then is burnt for energy, and some of the amino acids are what's called glucogenic, which means that the leftover is actually makes sugars, and some of them are ketogenic, which is the leftover makes ketones when they're deaminated. So what ends up happening is that you're shoving the, the leftover bits of the amino acids straight into the same process that metabolizes sugars or ketones. Wow, that's really cool. And, you know, protein is one of those things, as I said, that people don't understand, and they don't understand how... Um, how the body works in the absence of protein. So, so we were talking about fasting last week, and sure. And what happens is, if you eat nothing, you're doing a lot more for your body than if you eat just a little bit. Yes. And especially protein, you're going to eat a little protein, your insulin is going to rise, and now your body doesn't know what to do. It doesn't have enough energy to burn from what you eat, and uh, if your insulin is too high, it can't take your fat reserves. And so this is when problems start. And people think that if they don't eat protein or don't eat enough protein, and especially when fasting, that your body is going to take the protein from your muscles. And that's not true. No, it's not true. There's something special that happens when you're fasting. There's a difference for the body between having no food and having a little bit of food. Yes. A little bit of food is a little bit like, let's say today I have 2,000 calories and tomorrow I have 1,800 calories. The the body really can't tell the difference. It thinks, oh, we might be a bit light on today, but we'll we'll keep the normal processes happening because, you know, you might have 2,200 the following day. Mm. And then the following day, maybe you have 1,600 and the, the body still hasn't quite worked it out because it says, well, you know, we only had eighteen hundred yesterday. We've got sixteen hundred today, so it's not noticing. It's it's like a it's like the the way that you boil a frog is by starting him out yeah. in a pot of cold water and slowly increasing the temperature. So yeah, yeah. your body doesn't doesn't work it out. Whereas if you fast, if you have nothing, your body goes straight to DEFCON four and says, right, we're going to increase human growth hormone, and that human growth hormone is what maintains your muscle mass. Yes. And while you're fasting. Exactly. And as long as you have body fat at that point when you're fasting, all your energy will come from that. So it's a, ve it's a very muscle sparing way of going low calorie 
uh, which are certainly a lot better than a low calorie, low fat diet that um, uh, that is the traditional way of losing weight. That also has never worked. Where your insulin is high and therefore your fat never is allowed to be burned. Exactly. It's it's like it's like sending these poor people to bash their head against the wall. It, it's it's extremely unhelpful. So why do people talk about grass-fed meat? So that's actually not about the protein, but the fat that goes along with the protein. Grass-fed animals have a higher concentration of omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids. Most uh, animals are pastured on, on grasses. This is where cattle and sheep, for example, evolved to, to eat grasses. They've got cattle have four stomachs for precisely that reason. And then in the last most 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 animals in the last hundred days or so will get fed a, a high grain diet like a soy based diet. I've actually, I've actually tasted it in the feedlot. It's like warm muesli. It's delicious. <laughs> so, but it, what it does is it it fattens them up very very quickly. And it's to basically increase the weight of, of animal. That, right, because they sell it by the pound. Exactly. So what you end up with is you end up with an animal that's eaten a lot of corn, a lot of uh, carbohydrates. It's, it's uh, turning those into fat. And the, the, the polyunsaturates in the grains are predominantly omega-6 polyunsaturated. So it's a very inflamed animal. Mm. Uh, and what the animal eats ends up in, the, in its meat. So you end up with a lot of omega-6s. So hmm. uh, one of the reasons why a lot of paleo people like grass-fed animals is, is not only because the animals evolved well to feed on grasses rather than on grains, but they also, um, when you eat the meat, it's got more omega-3s. Or if you have if you have eggs from chickens that are raised on corn, it'll be higher in omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids. And if you eat chickens at free roam, chickens are omnivores like us. They eat worms, they eat bugs, they eat... Um, Lots of uh, critters, and and they end up with a higher omega three uh, ratio in their in their eggs. So going back to the fat show, when we talked about omega six versus omega three, you want to have a a higher ratio of omega three to six than the typical American diet does. It's yeah. it's really out of whack. Very much so. So, uh, so it's really a good idea to eat grass fed. Yes, a grain fed juicy steak is going to be better than having a pizza. But yeah, you know. If you were able to get a grass-fed steak, it's going to cost a little bit more, but it's worth it you know, in the long run. Is there necessarily less fat on a grass-fed piece of meat? No, not necessarily. Okay, because I, the grass-fed beef that I see in the grocery store tends to be lean. Right. And I just wondered, but but I have seen ribeyes and things that are more fatty that have been grass-fed. Yeah. And they are delicious. Yes, yes. So as we said before, some protein raises your insulin level. Um, but you know, if you're eating the ketogenic ratios, which is different from your standard low carb diet in that there's more fat and less protein, there uh, the ratios are enough so that insulin doesn't get raised as high. Yeah. So when I first started a low carb diet in 2004, that was on an Atkins diet, and that was when Atkins was really in their yeah, uh, uh, bread aisles would turn low carb all of a sudden, and uh, yeah. And I did Atkins maybe for. Uh, almost two years, but I was starting to feel nauseous towards the end. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that the Atkins diet was low carbohydrate above all other things, and they really didn't care about protein. And so it was a high protein diet. The, the problem with protein is when you eat more protein than you need to build up your muscles, 
and to, to, to maintain your body, all of the excess gets converted into glucose, basically converted into energy, um, and most of that gets converted into glucose. And that then causes insulin to rise, which causes you to put on more weight. So it, basically, it's not much point in going low-carb if you're going to be high-protein because the excess protein. So the distinction really between an Atkins diet and a ketogenic diet is a ketogenic diet is just enough protein to maintain your body. Only a non-caloric amount of protein. And that's that's to keep the insulin as low as possible. That's it. And it all comes down to keeping insulin as low as possible. Yeah. If we keep insulin as low as possible, it reduces our risk of cardiovascular disease, all of the nasty things that happen with diabetes. It also helps us lose weight. Um, there's lots of advantages for it. Are there any proteins that we should avoid because of the rate at which or the, the amount of insulin that gets uh, released when yeah, we eat them. It, the whey is a good example. There's a couple of uh, studies into whey, and, and it, it produces almost as much of a release of insulin as does glucose. Really? Yeah, it does. And it's because it's a cheap byproduct of uh, industrial cheese manufacture. Yeah. In Italy, where, you know, in, in, in the regions that make Parmesan cheese, they make uh, Parma hams. And the reason why is because they fatten their their pigs on whey because they've got nothing else to do with it. It's such a waste product from the, the cheese-making process. Yeah, whey. So when you eat a piece of hard cheese like Parmesan or cheddar or something like that, there's pretty much no whey in it, right? No. It's all been squeezed out. No way, dude. No way. No way. No way. <laughs> so, so whey is not a great thing to have. It's cheap, and so it's in a lot of uh, Atkins bars and Atkins shakes. Right, and a lot and of bodybuilders take whey protein. They or they, I've even seen keto and low carb diets where you cook with whey protein like you put it in your foods so that's not good and uh, no uh, it's that some of that's bro science a lot of bodybuilders uh, like there are bodybuilders who have carb ups before um before they exercise and that's a whole different level of the science that i really haven't gotten into because it's not something right. i've needed to research um yeah. but i tend to be skeptical about a lot of that but you know, insulin's role is to is to store energy. It's not necessarily for anabolizing, for building up muscles. And so, I don't understand quite why why pushing your insulin higher is a, is a good thing for uh, for bodybuilders to do. But I'd be happy for anyone who does understand that side of things to uh, send us an email. I'd be curious to learn. Who knows? We might uh, have you on as a guest. Yeah, you could be a third dude. Right. So, what happens if I eat too much protein? Okay, so we've already spoken about it turning into glucose. And if you have too much protein in your diet, more than you need to build muscles, you'll turn it into glucose. We've already spoken about that. So, yeah. so that's really an insulin twofer. You get, you get an insulin spike. Twofer. A twofer. You get an insulin spike for, from the protein. And then because you've had so much of the stuff, it spills over into uh, energy production and that produces more glucose. and More insulin. Exactly. So you get more insulin as well. So, so it's also hard on your kidneys. And this is one thing that I heard from a nurse and doctors and things when I was telling them that I was doing a low-carb diet, and this was the typical Atkins thing that you did, is that they were concerned that it put too much strain on the kidneys. And now I know why they say that. You know, And they say, well, the long-term results of what it does to your kidneys is not in, and it works your kidneys too hard. So that is really interesting. Another reason to eat more fat than protein. In fact, the ketogenic diets have actually been proven to 
reversed the diabetic nephropathy, which is the, the disease of the kidneys, in mice. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it happened with humans. Sure. Uh, but it is certainly interesting. Um, and, and because diabetes is predominantly a disease of vascular problems, uh, all of our small blood vessels that um, go through the kidneys um, as part of the filtration system, all those small blood vessels um, become inflamed. And so diabetics tend to have dialysis at some point in their lives and possibly a, a kidney transplant. Wow. And uh, we're preventing that from happening by eating ketogenic. We are. All these wonderful benefits are just constantly coming out here. Yes. Not losing limbs is what the one that I worry about. I yeah, almost lost, a good one. I, I almost lost a toe once uh, from, a, right. from a nasty infection that got away from me. So what happens if you don't eat enough protein? Well, if you don't eat enough, your body will scavenge uh, amino acids to repair itself and it does it from your muscles. So, you know, if you've got Arnold Schwarzenegger biceps, uh, it'll right. uh, pull some of those out. So we've spoke about that. Uh, and However, that's only if you're not fasting. That's right? it. That's right. If you're fasting, if you're fasting, your body goes into a different mode where it preserves your muscles because it's going to want you to chase down a mammoth to eat. Right. And just to call back to the fasting show, I was reading some more literature that I linked sure. uh, on the sh yeah, and there are studies that say um, in the first say forty eight hours of a fast, and I'm talking about no food fast, right. yeah, your metabolism raises by three point six to as much as ten percent. Wow! In other words, you're burning that much more. However, after sixty hours or maybe even ninety hours your metabolism starts to dial back a little bit. And so this is why most people say fasting should be in that 60-hour window or so. Yeah. And it, it can drop as much as, I think it was 8%. Yeah. It would make sense, really. To... It makes sense. And this is it. It makes sense from, a, from an evolutionary standpoint. Let's say there's no food. All right. You get a boost in metabolism and energy and... Uh, you know, adrenaline and growth hormone to protect your muscles. Yeah. Your body's saying, hey, stupid, get up and chase down something. Yeah. Now, if two days go by or three days go by and you still haven't eaten anything, it says, well, maybe this isn't just a, a short-term thing. It's adapting, like your eyes adapt to the uh, to the dark, right? Sure, yeah. You, it says, maybe it's not a short-term thing. Maybe this, this is more serious. All right, I'm going to stop burning so much fat and I'm going to conserve it. And it dials down the thermostat. That's interesting, yeah. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. But then it, how do you explain the guy who went for 382 days and went from like 400 pounds to... Uh... He was a stubborn Scotsman. I think that's how you explain that one. <laughs> <laughs> he, he walked in the front door, he jutted his jaw out and says, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> so even though his metabolism slowed down a little bit... He, he willed it to keep up. <laughs> it was still burning fat. It's interesting. So, so how much do I need? And this is the question that everybody, ketoers are very focused. Some are very focused yeah. on the macros, so on, the, on the ratios. Do you want the short answer or the long answer? Yeah, the short well, answer. Let's start with, the short answer is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and the, 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 long, the long answer is that lots of people have weighed in on it. And there was just recently a conference in Vail, Colorado, and there were a lot of luminaries there like uh, Steve Finney, Ron Rosedale, um, um, Jeffrey Gerber, uh, lots of uh, famous people in the, the low-carb area. Uh, Jason Fung was there as well, the, the fasting guy. Yeah. And, and yeah. this was a bone of contention because everybody had a different worldview of the need for 
for protein. Right. So I'll give you what I'm I'm aiming for, and I'm a little bit lower than most, but higher than Ron Rosedale. Okay. And I just do it from a mathematical point of view. I know that my uh, lean body mass is about 80 kilograms, and so I aim for 80 grams of protein during the day. And it's basically one gram per kilogram. And and because it's a ratio, the same would apply to pounds, right? If I'm 332 pounds, then I want 33.2 pounds of, or wait a minute. You need to first of all convert to kilograms, unfortunately. And then you also need to work out your lean body mass. So what you're trying to work out okay. is how much would I weigh if I had almost no fat on me at all? If I was like, when I was 20, I was at college and I had an 8% body fat and, you know, that ideal body weight. So that really comes from just height, doesn't it? You can have two people at the same height who have different lean body masses because, you know, one is built One's like more a muscular pr- than the other. Exactly. Yeah, so, uh, or, or one is just like a, a more solid and the other one is, is wiry. So uh, height mm. is not a great uh, model, but I know that the Atkins, the new Atkins uh, plan, um, which is basically um, Eric Westman, uh, Steve Finney, and, and Jeff Volek, they have a, a model where they use height, and they say, you know, if, if you're five foot ten, for example, and you're a male, then your range is, you know, 70, 77 to uh, 180 or so grams. Right. Um, okay. There's a keto calculator that we referred to on the first show, and I I right. use that to set uh, my to to basically work out how much lean body mass I had, and uh, approximately how much uh, protein that I needed, mm. and it allows you to plug in whatever figure that you want, and I just plugged in one gram for a kilogram so that I could um, uh, do that. Ron Rosedale, who's was one of the early pioneers probably he and steve finney are the last of the first generation of pioneers in the low carb area his um, model is one gram per kilogram of ideal body weight minus 10 percent so he's even lower than i am but i i because i'm type 2 diabetic i just want to skate along the the lowest level i don't i probably won't lose muscle mass because i'm doing things like um, my long bike rides and what have you yeah um and I haven't done weights now for maybe five months, uh, four or five months. Oh, okay. Um, and you do gonna, lift weights, though. I did. I used to lift weights four days a week, and I'm going to go back ah. to doing that. But the interesting thing is in that time off, I haven't really noticed a major loss of muscle. The ketogenic diet is certainly a muscle-sparing diet. When I first went on it, at the time I was lifting weights four days a week, and uh, I went on the ketogenic diet, and I lost only fat pretty much. And so at the end of uh, five to six months where I lost the majority of my of my body weight, all of a sudden these massive muscles appeared because they were sitting there underneath the body fat. Yeah. I wouldn't mind having carrying a little bit less muscle than what I currently have. Not much, but a little bit less, especially lower body muscle. So I've heard of this procedure where you can go to a clinic and they put you in a tub of water and somehow they figure out what your lean body mass is from that. Have, do you know what I'm talking about, what it's called? Yeah, they they used the displacement of your body, uh, how much water you displace and then and then your weight in the water and it's a complicated procedure. There's also there's a uh, a thing called a DEXA scan which is probably that that's probably the gold standard and the DEXA scan does an x-ray of you um, lying flat, and it basically identifies in white all of the body fat, and so you can actually see your cross section of where whereabouts on your body your fat is, and you can see, you know, if you have this, if you're predominantly visceral uh, depositions of uh, 
uh, deposits of uh, body fat or whether it's subcutaneous. You should know, though, whether you have visceral fat just by looking at the outside. I yeah, mean, you'll know. If, you're, if, you're, <laughs> if, you're, if you walk towards a wall and your belly hits it first, you've got visceral <laughs> fat. And I've been there. I, I don't mind putting up my hand. That was, that's all part of the yeah. diabetes complexus. If you, yeah. you, you can see people when you're driving along and you see people walking along the side of the road, you can tell the people who are diabetic because they have that apple shape where they've got very little they're not fat in the legs and the arms, but they've got this massive round belly and that's, uh, that's diabetes. But then there are thing. people who have type 2 diabetes that aren't overweight at all. Yeah, I feel sorry for those people because they have no indication of what's happening. I, I actually consider type 2 diabetes for me, even though I was only 38 when I first was uh, told that you know you could be having a problem, I consider that to be actually a good thing that happened to me because it basically told me about something that was happening in my body that there was no other indication. If I hadn't have gotten overweight and my pancreas decided to slow down its production of insulin so that my blood sugars went up, I would have been still eating the same way, living the same way and building cardiovascular disease. And I would have, I would have been another 20 years of uh, cardiovascular disease development. So, Well, it, it, it is really interesting how diabetes and weight are two different things. And overweight isn't necessarily, isn't necessarily a symptom of diabetes. In other words, there are people who are overweight that don't have type 2 diabetes, and there are people that have type 2 diabetes that are not overweight. Yeah. And so the two are different, but uh, in our case related. I'd be really interested to hear from anybody who has uh, theories about why that is, because yeah. that might shed some light into, uh, into our condition as well. Sure. All right, Richard, it's time for recipes. Recipes. Y'all do for a little... Recipes. 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 Okay. You're first. I'm first today. So so yep. I think we're both going to do something with the sous vide machine today. Absolutely, because there's no better way to cook meat than with a sous vide. Yeah, yeah. So I got a sous vide machine a couple of years ago from Aldi. Uh, it was like um, 100 bucks or so. And it's basically a temperature-controlled water bath. You can basically set it to a particular temperature and then you just leave the meat in that for you know, 12 hours or whatever and the temperature from the outside gets through to the centre of the meat and the whole meat turns to that, goes to that temperature and you basically set the temperature to your doneness of your meat. Now, if you throw a steak on a hot, hot plate, what will happen is the outside will go very hot, the outside of the steak will go very hot and you leave it on for as long as it takes for the inside to get to where you want it to be. Right. But in that time, the outside has been overcooked. And so sous vide is a process for making sure that the whole meat is exactly the level of doneness that you want. Right. And any interactions that happen above that set temperature don't happen. And any reactions that happen within that temperature range do. Sure. So typically what you do is you set it high enough so that the connective tissue melts and that because that makes delicious meat. Yeah. And you have it go long enough so that it can melt at that temperature, but not so high that it doesn't dry out or overcook. Or the denature meat. the meat, yeah. Yeah. So every all different proteins have different uh, methods of, of cooking and we should probably do, talk about eggs at some point and fish at another point because I've got lots uh -huh. of different sous vide tricks for those. But today I'm going to talk about tandoori lamb. Ooh. Mm, lamb cutlets, in fact. Oh. 
the uh, last Australia Day. Australia Day is on the 26th of January and uh, it's actually Julie's and my anniversary. So uh, so it's a special event for us and uh, it's kind of like July 4th. It's like our version of July 4th. Right. And lamb is as Australian as apple pie is American. Yeah. So lamb on Australian Day is a big thing. So the word sous vide actually means under vacuum and what you're doing is you're taking some meat and you're putting it in a bag and you're vacuum sealing it so that there is no air to act as an insulator between the, the heating element, which is the water, right. and, the, and the meat. So you're basically making sure that there's a clear contact surface between the meat and the, and the temperature. So I'm going, to get, I'm going to get some cutlets and what I'm going to do is I'm going to mix them in a marinade and the actual cooking time is going to be about two hours. So you actually don't need to leave them overnight, but, but we do. Uh, so to make the marinade, I use a commercial tandoori mix and I use a coconut yogurt, which is coconut yogurt, so generally lower carb than milk yogurts, but you could use a, a full-fat yogurt. Mm. You don't actually need a lot of it because you just want to coat the surface of the meat in the bag. When choosing a commercial tandoori mix, I mean, you can make your own mix. It's, it's actually not that, not that complex, but we only use about a teaspoon or two per meal. Uh, so, you know, if you make up your own mix, you end up wasting a lot. Whereas if you have it in a jar in the fridge, it lasts for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. I generally choose a mix that has the lowest carbohydrate content, and I want to get something under 10% to use as a source of marinade. Okay. I add a little bit of, uh, I, in, a, in a bowl, I add a bit of uh, about a teaspoon of the, uh, the marinade and about uh, a tablespoon of the yogurt, and I mix that together so it ends up with a basically orange-looking yogurt. And I take the lamb cutlets and I dip each side into the mix and then I put them in the bag. I put about four per bag and four is a meal for two people. So everybody gets two cutlets. It's about the right amount for us. Um, then we set the sous vide temperature for 58 degrees Celsius. Which is about 136 and a half degrees Fahrenheit. Or cool. Say 136. Cool. So this is going to get the meat to medium rare. And that temperature, that 58 degrees Celsius, will get to the center of the meat and make sure that Every single piece of that meat is medium rare. Yeah. And we set it for two hours. And the two hours is really to give that temperature long enough to, to, to get into the meat. And you can leave it on for 14 hours if you want. Um, you probably with uh, mammal meat like lamb and, and, and beef and, and uh, what have you, you probably don't want to leave it for more than about 24 hours because then you, the enzymes start to break down the meat. Uh, but for fish, you fish you got a much tighter window. Uh, fish you pretty pretty much only want to be in it for maybe 20 minutes, and if you've if it's been in for more than an hour, it's been too long probably. So we've sealed one end of the bag. We've put these cutlets in, and the cutlets have been smeared with this uh, tandoori yogurt mix, and then we seal up the other end of the bag with a vacuum vacuum sealer. Yep. When I do this, I fill up the sous vide machine. So I do four bags. I do sixteen. Uh, uh, cutlets all at once. So, so for us, that's that's going to be four meals, and we probably eat one that night and then freeze all the rest. And there's a trick actually with freezing them. Once the meat comes out of the sous vide machine at 58 degrees Celsius, it's too hot for bacteria to multiply, but, but there could be a few colony forming units left in the in the meat. So what you want to do is you want to take it from cooking temperature to fridge temperature and then to freezing temperature as quickly as you can. So a, water, a nice water bath. That's the best way, yeah. The, the, yeah. the fridge temperature is about four degrees Celsius. The fridge temperature is is enough to depress bacteria from growing. That's why our fridges are at four degrees. We don't want ice to form. We don't want it to go below zero 
for ice to form, but we want it low enough so that bacteria really has a tough time um, multiplying. Yeah. And so what we're doing is um, we're going to take it down through the danger zone. The, that, this is a zone that pathogenic bacteria loves to multiply in. Are you going to get through that danger zone quickly? Absolutely. Yeah. Throw it into an ice bath, um, get it down to its almost fridge temperature, and then put it in the freezer. And these bags are hermetically sealed. They go straight in the freezer. And then we mm. want, when we want to eat a meal, what we do is we pull the bag out of the freezer We'll uh, put it in some warm water to come up to room temperature and then just sear the cutlets on the outside just to give them a pleasing look. I mean, you can eat the cutlets straight from the bag because, as we said, it, you know, it's medium rare, uh, perfectly All the done. way through, but but it's off-putting. The color is off-putting for some people. So. Yeah, it goes a little bit gray-pinky look. So so you give them a sear so you've got that nice little crusty sort of Maillard reaction on the outside. Just maybe 30 seconds to a minute it yeah. tops. Yeah, each side. Well, that's great, Richard. I love that. And... Uh, my recipe is also a sous vide recipe. Nice. And what I use for a sous vide is a standard crock pot and this $100 device called the Dork Food Sous Vide. Oh, nice. And Dork Food is the company. In the link to the recipe, I have a link to the item. But if you just go to Amazon and search for Dork Food, which is one word, and then sous vide, S-O-U-S-V-I-D-E, You'll see this, a $99 device. What it has is a thermometer on the end of a cable, and that goes in your water bath. And then it has a plug with a plug on its back. In other words, a plug goes into the outlet, and then you can plug the crock pot into that plug. Okay. So there's a relay between the device's power and the power that comes out of it. So, so right? it's, it's turning the crock pot on or off then? Correct. You leave your crock pot on high. Yep. And then if it's not up to temperature yet, it will leave it on. And when it comes up to temperature, it'll switch often between off and on just to maintain that temperature. Nice. And it does, it is a relay and it does click. So this may be an annoying factor for some people and some people may be able to deal with it. If it's really a problem, you know, just put it in another room or a closet sure. or your garage or whatever and you won't hear it. But my recipe is to take a three or four pound chuck roast and cook it in the sous vide, also about the same temperature, 136 degrees, 135 uh, degrees Fahrenheit, 58 Celsius. That's a good medium rare. And every single inch of that meat is going to be medium rare. That's right. Now, here's the thing. I do it for two days. <laughs> nice. 48 hours. So what happens there is it's enough time for that uh, collagen to break down. Yeah, into gelatin. You know, the connective Yum. tissue to into gelatin. Mm. So you get the flavor of chuck, which is a very flavorful meat, and it's mm. also not expensive. Yeah. And true. it comes out like the tenderness of filet mignon. Oh, lovely. Now, what I do is uh, before it goes in the bag, I completely cover it in olive oil, coarse salt, chopped garlic, and herbs, usually thyme is really good for uh, beef. Yeah, time is good with beef, yeah. Uh, maybe a little rosemary. Mm -hmm. Rosemary is better with lamb, but, yeah. um, you know, it's still good. And I, and I vacuum seal the bag, put that in there, and 48 hours later, you take that out, let it rest just for a few minutes, and then sear all sides on a very hot cast iron skillet or pan or whatever it is. And then I slice it into portions, and I also sear those portions a little bit on each side. My wife likes medium, not medium rare. So I have to bring it up to temperature for her. 
uh, and then uh, I can eat the medium rare pieces just uh, with a little sear on them. Here's another trick. When that meat comes out of the bag, there's a lot of juice in the bag. Mm, bag juice, yes. Bag juice. Yes, and the, the classic sauce is you yeah. take that bag juice, you add a little wine maybe, a red wine, a butter. some butter, some heavy cream, yeah. and you, you don't have to salt it because it's very salty. You've already sure. salted the meat, right? Yeah. And uh, and then just cook that down. Put a you know you can add more heavy cream to to dilute the salt a little bit, and you still get that flavor. And all those herbs and garlic are in there. Mm. Cook it down, bubble it, you know, boil yeah. it a little bit to thicken it up. It's like taking the fond off the bottom of the pan after you've cooked. Oh yeah, know, so, yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. It's lovely. And that just becomes a nice sauce. You can add mushrooms if you like, mushrooms, you know, just wherever you want to put in that sauce. Yeah. Just be careful that you don't oversalt it. But, you know, on the keto diet, we need salt and fat. We do. We Salt goes through us, through us yeah. And this is the perfect way to get uh, a little extra of both. Yeah. And now, uh, one thing I like doing with steak is uh, putting a little bit of butter over the top. And, and Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't, <laughs> don't want to let anyone see you doing this in a restaurant, especially if you're not packing a few, if you're packing a few pounds because- They you think know, you're crazy, right? Do. Can you they bring do. me some butter for my <laughs> steak? And they say, yeah, sure, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, my friend, that's a show. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I hope you learned a few things about protein. Please send us email, dudes at twoketodudes.com or comment on the website, twoketodudes.com. We, uh, we love to hear from you. And uh, happy eating. We'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. <laughs>